0: This is the Drummers Resource Podcast, Session 525, and you're listening to the Daniel Glass Show only on Drummers Resource. This is it, right here. Uh huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah uh, ah. Uh, you'll be swinging. Uh huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass Show on Drummers Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of The Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. And I want to begin today's podcast with a couple of really exciting pieces of news, one uh, I've already announced or dropped hints about, um, and that is that it's it's happening. Uh, we are putting together, and we're going to be opening registration for, very shortly, the first annual inaugural Daniel Glass European Jazz Intensive. Super excited about this. Uh, as most of you who are regular listeners to this podcast know, I've been doing... Uh, now for the last four years, a jazz intensive here in New York City where I live. It's been an amazing experience. And my partner, J.C. Clifford, who is the man behind Drum Tax. I don't know if you're aware of Drum Tacks. They're these amazing, uh, uh, I don't know if you'd call them, you don't want to call them muffling devices. He hates when I call them that. Uh, they're they're uh, Tone Control, that's what he calls them. And they're a fantastic product. Anyway, J.C., that's his company, but he's also a, an entrepreneur and a real man about town in the, in the drumming industry as a, as a businessman and an entrepreneur. And he and I have created these jazz intensives. And he said, um, well, he brought to the table a gentleman named Falco Ecke, who owns in Germany a wonderful school called Kist, which actually means groove box in, in German. It's a, uh, it's a drum school in a town called Osthofen, which is uh, very close to Frankfurt, and last year, well, this this year, 2019, at the NAMM show, uh, we had a meeting about it at NAM. Falco is a big fan of Royal Crown Review, and he said, Hey, I would love to host a jazz intensive at my school. And so we've been plotting and planning. It's now October, and I'm thrilled to say that next April, we are holding the first annual uh, Daniel Glass European Jazz Intensive at the Groovekist in Usthofen, Germany. Uh, the dates are going to be April 14th through the 18th, 2020. Put it on your calendar. Um, I'm recording this in October of 2019, and in within the next couple of weeks, we are going to launch the registration for the event. A lot of really exciting stuff. I don't want to give too much away yet but it's coming together in a fantastic way. So that is on the books. It's official. If you're interested in being informed as soon as we open registration, I strongly suggest that you email me, daniel at danielglass.com, your information, and let me know you want to be put on the advance notice list. I have a feeling just from the buzz and um, the way it's all coming together, this is going to sell out pretty quickly. So send me an email with your information, um, maybe a little about yourself, and uh, and we'll let you know when we open for registration. And I'll have more information on this program and elsewhere coming up. But the uh, inaugural Daniel Glass European Jazz Intensive is on April 14 through 18, Osthofen, Germany. Okay, the other big piece of news that just uh, was confirmed a few days ago is that uh, Royal Crown Review, my band of many, many years? I talk frequently about this band on, on my program, and it was a giant part of my life for a long time. Uh, we are having a giant reunion show, uh, also in April of twenty twenty. Literally, I'm gonna I'm gonna go from this show directly to Germany for the Jazz Intensive. But uh, the uh, the show is going to, we're going to sort of headline the Viva Las Vegas Rockabilly Festival in Las Vegas. It's an annual event. This upcoming uh, April 2020 will be the 23rd annual Viva Las Vegas Festival. It's For anybody who knows anything about Rockabilly, this is the, I would say, foremost and uh, most formidable Rockabilly gathering weekender in the world. It's It's the biggest by far. Tremendous uh, number of people come from all over the world. It sort of uh, is the mecca of the rockabilly faithful. Um, Bands playing morning, noon, and night. Everybody dressed to the nines in their greaser best. Uh, Incredible car show with the most amazing lineup of vintage cars you'll ever see in one place. And a lot of them have been chopped and dropped and otherwise modified. Um, And uh, music. Everywhere, uh, there's every lounge, every showroom in the hotel. It's it's going to be happening at the Orleans Hotel and Casino in Vegas. Uh, every venue is filled with bands playing rockabilly, rhythm and blues, early rock and roll, uh, country, some you know country veined uh, stuff in the in that in in, in that uh, in that vein, I guess you could say. Uh, and uh, the biggest event of the entire four days is uh, the headlining slot outdoors at the car show on the outdoor stage. And um, I'm super happy to say that Royal Crown Review will be reuniting. Uh, As of the moment, it is a one-show-only thing. We have no plans to do anything else, but the timing was right. The environment seemed right. uh, Their offer was right. And um, we're super excited. So Eddie Nichols will be there, the singer, Mondo, Dharami, tenor player, myself, uh, Scott Steen, our longtime trumpet player for many years, uh, Bill Ungerman, who hasn't played a show probably with the band since about 2001. David Miller, a bass, Mark Kelly on guitar. So it's going to be uh, a, a night to remember. I just put the word out on Facebook, and we've posted it in a couple of spots, and the response has already been incredible. People are making their plans. So if you want to see Royal Crown Review in all its glory in 2020, um, April 11th is the date. Las Vegas is the place, the Orleans Hotel and Casino is part of Viva Las Vegas. Uh, You can go to VivaLasVegas.net for all the information. And even if you just want to come for the concert, you can literally buy a one-day pass that will get you access to the car show and all the events that day for that Saturday. Um, And then you could just walk around the lobby of the hotel. You can go in there for free and just watch the spectacle. And it is quite a spectacle. So that's my special news. Um... I'm going to move on to the topic of today's podcast, which is I got fired from my very first tour and it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) Now you might say, well, why is getting fired from a tour a good thing? And I, you know, I was just recently thinking about it. It kind of all clicked into place for me. So, um, It's a good story. It's a fun story. Sometimes I like to tell stories. I've been in this industry for a long time, and I like to share uh, some of the interesting places I've ended up in and things that have happened. Um, I should take this all the way back to when I was a student in music school, 1991, Los Angeles, and I was um, doing anything I could, especially 1991 was the year I was in school. I I was in for one year at a place called the Dick Grove School of Music. Um, and then after that, I was doing anything to try to just figure out how to to make my way in the world as a musician. Of course, first couple of years out of music school was a lot of hustling and not a lot of money and a lot of you know blood, sweat, and tears and, and frustration uh, with just trying to get it all figured out in, in a big town like Los Angeles. But one of the things that I fell into was playing blues gigs on the streets of Old Town Pasadena. For those of you who are Californians, um, Southern Californians, you probably know old Town, old Town Pasadena, Colorado Boulevard runs through the, the old section of Pasadena. And uh, they turned it into a really pleasant, you know, walking streets and restaurants and it has a lot of old school Southern California charm. So they, there was a, a group that played. They actually were called Willie and the Poor Boys. <laughs> the leader was a guy named Willie. Uh, who played uh, like a resonator guitar and had a harmonica around his neck and played slide. And there was a native American guy with long hair who played harp. I remember that. And um, a buddy of mine who I was going to school with, who was a bass player said, uh, yeah, you should come out and do this gig with us. And I think I started out as a sub and then I started doing it more. And we literally would just, somehow they had a permit. We would play out on the streets, Colorado Boulevard, old town Pasadena on Saturday night Lots of people walking by. We would play blues. I think I just brought like a bass drum and a snare and I guess I I brought hi-hat. I must have brought a small drum set. And I learned a fair amount about the blues. Um and it was was a lot of fun. Uh we made money. You know, not a lot, but it was it was, you know, tips in the in the guitar case type of a thing. It was something to do on a Saturday night to uh to to have a gig. So um then my, my buddy Steve one time sent a sub on bass, uh, and this guy and I got along real well. And maybe a few months later, I got a call from him saying, yeah, I've been working with a blues guitarist named Debbie Davies, and uh, I want you to, uh, you know, want to see if you're interested in maybe doing a, a tour with us. And my eyes lit up. Uh, this was probably 1993 i you know had never done a tour before that of course is what all musicians want to do and um and he said yeah the debbie davies is this uh a blues guitar player female blues guitar player obviously and she uh was in the band of albert collins for a long time albert collins for those who are into the blues know he's a titan of texas blues right up there with bb king albert king um Freddie King, all the kings, and Albert Collins is is right up there with them. Now I didn't really know that much about the blues. I'd just sort of been winging it and having a good time at these gigs out on Colorado Boulevard. But now this was sort of serious because this was a real blues artist, and uh, I was going to be on tour. And uh, so you know, but I, I didn't have much time to kind of figure things out. Um, because he said, well, yeah, we're going to rehearse. I, I've talked about this before as well. I had a converted garage at my place, and I held a lot of rehearsals and jam sessions there, which was how I did a lot of my playing with folks after I got a of music school and didn't have gigs. So I would invite people over to my garage, and I think I even had a PA, PA in there for a while and my drums, and it was soundproofed relatively, so I could rehearse there during the day without bothering anybody. So... Debbie came over. It was a it was a small band. Bass, drums, Debbie who played uh both rhythm guitar and lead guitar and sang and then a a, a guy who um also uh he he was he was sort of the lead guitar player. So he played a lot of the solos. And but he, you know, he was the second second guitar. So two guitars, bass and drums. We ran through a few tunes and Debbie was like, "Yeah, all right, that's cool. Um here you go." So we ended up doing a bunch of in-town gigs in Los Angeles and the LA area. I remember at that time, LA was an incredible place for live music in the early 90s. This would have been, like I said, I think 92, maybe 93. Uh, So many clubs and music venues and bars. People at this time in history, not that long ago, you know, would go out and see live music. And that was what you did. There wasn't cable wasn't as sophisticated as today. Of course, there was no internet to speak of at that time. Nobody had cell phones. And, um, so it was a a thriving scene. And both when I joined Royal Crown a little bit later and, um, you know, when I was playing with Debbie, uh, there was a lot of places to play. So that was great. And we did a bunch of, of LA, local LA gigs. She was living in LA at the time. She had grown up in Los Angeles, I believe. And, um, And then we did a two-week tour up the West Coast, and we hit Monterey and San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, uh, Redding, you know, those areas on up, uh, Seattle, Portland, um, Bellingham. I remember we had a gig up there. And we all in that time, we did a couple of really fantastic gigs, which, you know, for me was real arrival moments. And remember, this was my first tour. It was a real you know, typical blues tour, get in the van, 100 bucks a night, um, staying in Motel 6's, eating at Denny's, that was that was it. And it was not unusual, especially because the blues, you know, it's a classic American art form, but definitely not, uh, well, most, most bands are living that life on the road, regardless of what style of music it is. But Debbie was great. She was very welcoming. We would listen to a ton of music in the van. Uh, I learned so much about the blues in the... Time that I was working with her, and from the guys, and uh, you know, it was uh, it was a wonderful learning experience. And as I mentioned, there was a few real key seminal moments. We played the Santa Cruz. Well, we did two blues festivals. We did, sorry, one in San Jose, which was a woman women in the blues festival. So it featured female blues acts. And I remember one of the headliners was Laverne Baker the very famous, um, uh, uh, artist, trying to remember what label, the very famous, uh, Atlantic, Atlantic records. Uh, when it first started, had a lot of blues artists and Laverne was one of their first big artists. And, uh, along with Ruth Brown, uh, so Laverne Baker was on that and there was uh, Shakira Hooker, John Lee Hooker's uh, I think daughter uh was on there and, and and we were on there. It was all very exciting. I'd never really played big festivals before. I mean, I mean this wasn't huge, but it was it was a significant festival. We also opened even more significantly. We opened for um Albert Collins, Debbie's former boss and mentor. And um so that was tremendously exciting because I had Seen, You know, we also saw a bunch of great blues bands during that time. We went, saw John Mayall. We went, and uh, I remember we got to see Buddy Guy. I saw Buddy Guy for the first time. And also, I got to see um, Clarence Gatemouth Brown up in Seattle, who was phenomenal because he was not only a great blues man, played guitar, he also played violin, and uh, but he also... Would had done had had a whole career as a country artist, and he could he could go be on the country circuit, then he could be on the blue circuit. Clarence Gatemouth Brown, he was incredible. All of them were incredible, and so it was a it was a real education for me, and I was really excited about the opportunity. It was the the first time I think I I had had some terrible you know day jobs uh, to to make ends meet, and this was the first time I was able to kind of step away from that. And um, anyway, so. I thought, you know, hey, everything's going great. We get back to LA from this tour. Oh, I don't know if I got to finish talking about Albert Collins. Let me just say about Albert Collins. My mind was completely blown by by watching that guy. And not only because Debbie had played with him, but because um his intensity, his energy, his uh the sound of his guitar, the the you know, and I, and I have to say, after seeing him live, and I've seen BB King. I, of course, I didn't get to see Freddie King; he died quite a while back. I didn't ever see Albert King. But of those sort of legendary uh, bluesmen, Albert Collins just knocked me out. It was just something about him, and I really began to understand blues in a whole new way from being a part of of this band. And of course, you know, I had backstage access to certain people, and I could, you know, we got to meet people, and so all of that. And I really got an exposure to the world of the blues that I would would not have had otherwise. So, anyway, we finished the tour. We get back to L.A. There's a little time off. And then I'd heard through the rumor mill that the next leg, they were going to drive out to Texas. I'm like, wow, Texas. I've never been to Texas. Um, Chance to play blues in Texas, a very famous blues locale. So, I'm, I'm here, you know, getting all excited about this. And then my phone rings, and it's Debbie. And she says, well, I made the decision that I'm going to take someone else to Texas. And I said, oh, man, well, why is that? And she said, well, to be honest, Daniel, your shuffle is just not quite strong enough. And that kind of blindsided me because I thought I had been doing a good job. And I was obviously hurt and upset. um, And, you know, those things are never fun when you're fired or rejected, in some way, and I've I've definitely had my share of instances of being fired off projects or being fired from bands, uh, or just not getting a callback. We've all had that, and that you know rejection is never easy in our business, without a doubt. So, the 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 plus side was that I really hadn't been involved with this band long enough to really have a true sense of belonging. I think I literally maybe played with Debbie for a total of about. Between the LA gigs that we did and the uh, the tour, maybe a month or five weeks. So, you know, I had to go back to the day jobs. That was real depressing, and and uh, I, uh, you know, but I, I bounced back quickly and just was like, okay, what's next? You know, and just kept going. And interestingly, during this whole time, I had a whole another project, which is which was like a uh, an alternative rock new wave kind of project that was sort of modeling itself after the cure. So (laughs) I really was doing a really wide variety of stuff. Maybe that's a a different story for another podcast, but in any case, so another few months go by, I had also been playing with some of the guys been playing jazz with some of the guys in Royal crown review in a side project, the aforementioned Royal crown review that will be reuniting April 11th, 2020 in Las Vegas. Um, I've been doing a side project with the guys from Royal Crown Review. Of course, they had already been around for a few years. They were a fairly well-established local band in L.A. or regional band, Southern Cal and Northern Cal out in Arizona. But uh, I, I, this band was called The Jazz Jury, and we were playing a lot of gigs around L.A., and then the opportunity came up for me to join Royal Crown Review. I probably told this story on my one of my previous podcasts where I talk about our time with KISS, uh, touring this, the, the, the 1996 podcast one week in 1996, where I talk about opening for Kiss and Neil Diamond in the same week. And I talked about Royal Crown on the Warp Tour podcast that I did, et cetera. So I joined Royal Crown Review and I, again, I was now, I had a lot more wood shedding under my belt. I was much more serious, taking the the audition seriously, I saw what great potential this band had. There were already lines around the block every Wednesday when they played at the Derby, and they were doing a lot of traveling. I was even, you know, with the side project traveling up to San Francisco and down to San Diego, uh, just on the strength of Royal Crown, the side project could fill uh, rooms in those those towns. So, um, but then the guys started coming to me and saying, man, you know, the grooves you're playing just aren't right, and... I I kind of, you know, really got serious about it and I remembered getting fired from from Debbie Davies band. And so over time, I you know, said, "Well, give me some of the songs that that you feel are important. I remember Bill Ungerman, I'm always grateful to Bill, and he's going to be on this gig with us in Vegas again, but he gave me like a mixtape back in the old days of cassettes. He gave me a mixtape said, listen to these tunes. And it wasn't necessarily songs that Royal Crown was doing, but it was songs by a lot of those artists, people like Bill Doggett and Wynonie Harris and Louis Jordan. And I began to kind of really hunker down and try to figure out what was happening understand that this music wasn't really jazz in the bebop sense, and I was kind of playing it more like trying to be like, play a lot of hip type of chops. It really was groove music, but it wasn't, it rocked, but it wasn't rock in the sense of straight eighth, you know, boom, bap, boom, boom, bap, and it was blues. It was definitely the blues, but it wasn't the blues that I had been, you know, playing with Debbie Davies, which is more what we think of as sort of straight-ahead blues. It was this weird style that really, at the end of the day, you could break it down and call it rhythm and blues, and it was African-American popular music that had evolved um, out of the swing era. And, you know, rhythm and blues and bebop both evolved at the same time out of the popularity of the big bands. When the big bands kind of went out of popularity at the end of World War II, the, the music split into two camps. Um bebop which took the jazz component of big band swing and um and ran with it and turned you know took took jazz and made it much more of of a of a an art form of a a, a, you know very high-end art form that it has become today but the other aspect of that was the entertainment side of swing and big band and that was what became rhythm and blues and so the music was jazzy it was bluesy and it rocked because rock and roll came straight out of rhythm and blues. And I've talked a lot about that evolution on various podcasts, including my podcast about Rock Around the Clock uh, and other others. So eventually my, you know, I I listened to this to this tape and I did a lot of homework and I began to really focus on the grooves and I finally began to mature a little and realize that the groove and the pocket and the pulse and the way that the time moved And the feel that this music had was deep and is something that required much, much more of my attention. Uh, And I began to slowly, you know, and thanks to the patience of the guys in the band, I began to slowly mature into understanding what was going on. And, you know, thankfully, they were patient with me and we were busy as a band and we were moving up and our career was going forward. And so we all just... We're trying to be students of the craft, and students of history, and students of, you know, the uh, the fashion, and students of this, the the instruments, the vintage instruments, and just really immerse ourselves in that world that was inspiring us. Of course, we were writing a lot of our own music at this time as well. So, that really began my path toward digging deep into the history. And then they, they started pushing me, you know, there's this guy who played with Lewis Jordan who lives down in South Central. You should call him up. And, you know, that didn't take much prodding because I I, of course was into history and research and all that stuff. And so uh, I think my very first interview I did was with a guy named Johnny Kirkwood, who was a well-known player on the, you know, the African-American jazz sideman scene in LA. Um, he had played with uh Louis Jordan in the 1950s but he'd played a lot with uh uh Jimmy Smith the organ player and uh a lot of other folks and i became friends with him and he introduced me to the central avenue world in uh, in in south los angeles and the history of that and so you know then then i then i became obsessed and i became the the freak that you know and love today who's just completely obsessed with learning more about the evolution of our instrument and of how we play it and, and all of that. But I guess to make a long story short, I, you know, I was presented when I was fired from this first tour with, you know, sort of a a couple of ways of going about it. I could have, you know, sort of moved in a different direction and maybe i would have if if other opportunities had come up but it seemed like this music that swings and shuffles and 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 moves just kept presenting itself to me or that's where i kept heading and so i became very serious about it it was always in the back of my mind that i had lost that gig and um you know it's it's ironic so flash forward I moved to New York in 2010, which I can't believe, again, next April, lots happening next April, I'm coming up on 20 years, sorry, 10 years, 10 years of living here in New York City, which has just flown by. It's been pretty incredible. Um, But when I got to New York, I I had already uh, published my book, The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, of course, the book I've done with Zorro, um... That came out in 2009, and in that book I had written a section about the, you know, the the drummers that were keeping the blues alive today, at least in the world in 2009, and I included in one of the the last chapters a a, a long list of names of current blues drummers, because I wanted to not only discuss the great classic blues drummers, but give credit to those that were keeping the art form alive and were current today, so people who read the book go out and check them out as well. And of course, I was wondering who, who was playing with Debbie Davies, and uh, it was a guy named Don Castaño. And I can't remember how it happened, whether it was right after I moved to New York or right before, but I was I was starting to come out here and spend more time in New York with the idea that I was going to be moving. And Don Castaño reached out to me, and we became friends. And I don't, I I guess somebody had seen his name in the book, or he had, gotten the book and was reading the book and saw his name. And so he reached out to me. And uh, that that was that was a pleasant surprise and kind of a nice bookend. So, you know, there was no bad blood. I wasn't upset at Debbie. She was absolutely right. I, I didn't have my shuffle together enough. But, you know, it's kind of ironic that I then turned around and really got my shuffle together, then wrote, you know, the book on shuffles, and, uh, you know, then got back in touch with 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 Debbie. And I, I haven't seen Debbie, but we've been friends on Facebook and written back and forth a bunch of times and um it's been it's been real real nice. So um you know I guess the the lesson here is sometimes getting fired can be a, a great wake up call and it can light enough of a fire under our ass. <laughs> it certainly did mine to to get us to get out there and conquer the thing that that was the reason why we lost the gig in the first place. I guess that that would be my lesson. Uh, It certainly was the case for me, and it it ended up being that the thing that I was weak at, I was weak at playing shuffles. Uh, Now, you know, I I make my living, or I did for many years in Royal Crown make my living playing shuffles, and today shuffles are some of my best friends, and I've written a book about it and teach about it. So, um, anyway... I guess that is, that is my podcast for today, and the goal is not to discourage, but to encourage all of you to, um, you know, if something is getting you down, if you're not good at something, tackle those things that you're not good at, right? I had a teacher in music school, a wonderful bass player named Dean Taba, and he and I connected because we were both from Hawaii, and he had left and gone to LA many years before I did but um he's now back in Hawaii and I just saw him the last time I was there a couple of years ago and he's a tremendously wonderful bass player great guy and he was really one of my mentors at music school but one time we asked him in ensemble class we said dean you're so good how do you you know what do you practice cuz we, we couldn't believe that he would need to practice much. And his answer never left me. He said, I practice what scares me. I practice what scares me. And I think that is some of the most valuable advice I ever got. And maybe that his voice was in my head when I when I got fired from this gig. Um, you know, it's it's not easy for us to do that. And we have to be honest about that, right? It's a lot easier to practice what we're good at or what we already know we can do uh, than what we're not good at and what, you know, we fear, right? It's like a hairy monster in the closet. Um, The more you ignore it, the bigger it gets and the scarier it gets. And certainly I could have run away from shuffles at that point and gone in a different direction. And instead, you know, maybe almost subconsciously, I, I... you know picked up the 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 spear or the the sword and confronted that hairy monster for me and you know i still think i have a heck of a lot to learn about shuffles about swing you know it's very humbling it's one of those things where the more that you learn about something the more you realize that you have a lot a lot to learn about it and so you know i i embrace it but i I never take, never take my abilities for granted in that regard. And uh, certainly I try to confront those things that scare me the most. So anyway, I hope that gives you a little bit of inspiration in your own path and that if things are looking rough, look farther down the road and maybe you could turn those weaknesses into your greatest strengths. All right, that is it for me today on the Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. Keep swinging, be in touch. Uh you know, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm there. And mark your calendars for the 2020... uh, (laughs) I can't even say it. Mark your calendars for the Royal Crown Review Reunion Show, Las Vegas, uh, October 11th at the Viva Las Vegas Rockabilly Weekender and the Daniel Glass European Jazz Intensive in Usthofen, Germany, uh, April 14th through 18th, 2020. I'll see you there or out there in some way. Have a good one. Keep swinging.